0: Okay, good morning to everybody. Um, I, I think in an ideal world, if my memory serves me correctly, Matt, we, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk for about 25 minutes. Um, and then let's just bat some things around, if that's okay with you all. Raise questions and, and, uh, and see where, where the conversation goes. And I realize we're a little bit pressed for time, so we'll, we'll try to stay on this. Um, we're talking about the Bible. Um, Advent is a Bible place. At our church, I'll have to say this is one of the things that I am continually grateful for. Um, the Bible's talked about a lot around around the advent, the authority of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the Bible for all things pertaining to faith and practice. Um, that's that's our that's our linguistic system. and I, I was thinking about that this week. Um, you know a lot of people in the South, you know, you, you have you're you're familiar with Christian knees right or, or Christian language. Some people might not be, and you know I'm sort of I'm reminded that as people come into the life of any church, but especially into a church that's liturgical like ours is, um, that you you have to sort of learn a new language system in a way, Um, and I think that's a big part of what this class is here to help us sort of gain a grammar for how we talk about things as it relates to our faith that can also give us a grammar for how We can understand what's going on when, when we worship together, especially in our, in our prayer book tradition. So the Bible's a big deal here, and I actually think that the, that the way in which the Bible is dealt with at the Advent, um, and, and in churches like ours that are, if you've noticed, and again, I'm, I'm, I don't know where you all are, so I'm, I'm just gonna sort of speak to the middle, I guess. Um, but our, our, our Sunday mornings, our, our lectionary, um, morning and other the reading is built around a three-year lectionary that tends the center on the Christian seasons as you move from advent all the way to easter and then you go into a proper year after that um and we uh, focus on the, on a certain shared readings that many many christians catholic kind of across the world share these this rhythm of readings that we had this this um this morning so in other words there are lots of churches around the country and around the world that heard romans 5 this morning read and heard the woman at the well at John Ford this morning. That, that's something very common. Um, and, and what I like about a lectionary approach to worship and liturgy and preaching, um, we have some chairs around if you all are, is there chairs back there? there oh, Bruce Kelly, front row seat.
1: <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, there you go.
0: Um, so, you know, the, the nice thing about the rhythm that goes on here when it comes to the Bible and its place is that you know the lectionary cycle allows us what, to do what I would call sort of um, whole council preaching. Um, you're, you're getting a wide array of texts from the Old Testament and the Psalms and from the New Testament, both the Gospels and the Epistles. You're getting all of that coming at you. And that allows sort of an entry into the larger scope of the whole of the Christian Bible, Old and New Testaments. And then when we break out to do this Sunday morning hour thing between 10 and and 10.50, when that happens, more, more often than not, classes are given to the study of particular books of the Bible. Um, I think, I think Andrew has been an axe now in the dean's class for 10 years. Um, but he's, he's been an axe, I think, since he'd become the dean. Um, so that's wonderful. So he's been an axe. I've just started a series in Philippians. I think Doug Webster just finished a series in Job. I mean, if you start looking at our, and not all of our Sunday school hour is, you know, strictly Bible study kind of things, but a lot of it is given to that. So you get in Sunday morning worship, whole council approach to the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospel Epistle, and then when we come together for Sunday school, then you get a kind of, or have at least the opportunity to get a targeted look at the, the logic and the movement and the theology of particular books of the Bible. And I, I like that. I think that, that the juxtaposition of those two approaches to the Bible, um, really get at something very important from each angle. And I, and I think our church sort of steps into that in ways that are very helpful. The other thing about our church, I'm so glad that uh, Matt in his sermon this morning referred to the articles of religion. I'd like to do that, too, uh, because the Advent... Just so you know, not all y'all know this. Not all Episcopal churches get giddy about the Thirty-Nine Articles. I mean, I don't know if that's new news to you, um, but they, you know, th- those are kind of um, like Grandpa's, you know, wristwatch up on the mantle. You know, it's like, well, those that, that's that relic that's collecting dust up there, part of our familial memory. But we, you know, we, we never use it, right? We, we 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 use that wristwatch a lot around here. Um, so the Thirty-Nine Articles is very much central to the theology of our church. And I think that the, the article of religion on the Bible is, is about as good as it gets, right? So I want to read that and then we're going to talk about some Bible verses and then we'll take questions, all right? So here's the, here's the article of religion on the Bible. Article uh, number six. Um, Holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby is not to be required of any man, and we'll just put this, or woman, right? That it should be believed as an article of faith. So if it's not found in the Bible, if it's not explicitly taught in the Scriptures, then that is not, your conscience is not bound by it, right? This is what um, in the Reformed tradition they would refer to as the freedom of the Christian. Christians can disagree on lots of things. I mean, just think about the kind of things that we can disagree on. I'll, I'll throw one at you, parenting styles. Nothing can ruin a family get-together like different parenting styles, right? Um, and people can attach a certain kind of uh, either self-righteousness or a certain kind of um, uh, biblical fidelity to their parenting style. I've got bad news for all of us, and I'm a parent you know, that's you know, crashing our ships on rocks with this thing. Um, the Bible doesn't give you boo about a particular parenting style, right? It doesn't do that. I mean, it gives you a certain sort of broad tent on how things should go. As I tell my kids, you know, the Bible's real clear for you all what you need to do: obey and respect. That's it. Two things. That's all it says. Just let's. If we can get those, we'll be sailing, right? Um, so there's all kinds of differences that the Christians might have when it comes to various aspects of Christian expression, but nothing is bound. Nothing binds the conscience unless it is explicitly taught and affirmed in the Bible. That is the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible. And that means that we can breathe easily and allow a lot of space for difference on various things in the Christian faith. There's a lot of room for freedom. But when it comes to what the Bible explicitly claims and teaches, the Christian is subservient to that and some sort of abeyance to the authority of of, of the Scriptures. So I'll stop there. Now I I want to talk about three things this morning. Um, word and tradition, uh, number two, I want to talk about the Bible being a witness to Jesus. And then number three, I want to talk about what does it mean when we say that the Bible is inspired. All right. So we're going to talk about word and tradition. We're going to talk about witness to Christ. And then number three, God breathed and breathing. And I'm going to do all of that in 15 minutes. All right. So here we go. Put on your, the, we're about to hit some turbulence. Um, If you have Bibles on your phones, or don't worry about it. Um, Isaiah chapter 40. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 40. Um, I'm going to read. I'll have three scripture texts and then we'll talk about each one of these these points. Verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? This is what you should cry. All flesh is grass. All of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right, I'll say that one more time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Here's something that I think is so fascinating about this text in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is a massive book. 66 chapters. You can get lost in there very quickly. We have Isaiah's name as the prophet all over the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. But when you get to chapter 40 for the rest of the book, and there are, people have different sort of r- r- rationale for why this happens. I, th- I'm going to give you my rationale. Um, we no longer see the name of any explicit prophet for the rest of the book. In other words, Isaiah's name doesn't show up. Um, his contemporary Hosea doesn't show up. There's no reference to Micah, his buddy from the, you know, from the low range regions down to the south, southwest. None of these figures show up. The only figure that shows up through the rest of the book is the word of the Lord. I think there's an emphasis that's being made here in the book of Isaiah that the grass withers and the flower fades, all flesh is grass like you and me, and like prophets, like Isaiah. Isaiah breathed his last Micah breathed his last, Uh, Zephaniah died one day, right? So these prophets as prophetic figures, they come and they go, but the prophetic word that they bring to us, it lasts forever. I mean, here we are on what, March the 18th, 2017, reading Isaiah's words, who's long been in the dust for a long time, but his word remains forever. I think this taps into the Reformation slogan. And if they sold t-shirts in Wittenberg in the you know, 16th century, and they didn't. But if they did, you know, they'd have a slogan on there, sola scriptura, right? The scriptures alone. And what, do, what does that claim mean? It doesn't mean that, they didn't, that the, the, the Reformers didn't care about tradition. Tradition really mattered, and it was important. But where is tradition placed vis-a-vis the Bible? And the answer is, the Bible is always I mean, tra- tradition is always subservient to the Bible. Tradition is subservient to the Bible. To put it another way and I'm taking here from a theologian who just died this year I mean, God, God bless his memory. He's had a huge impact on my life, named, a man named John Webster. Um, John Webster defined it this way: Scripture is the speaking voice of God to his people, and tradition is the hearing ear. And tradition often hears the Bible well. I mean, I tell this to my students all the time. You need to know this. Your grandma was not the first person to read the Bible, right? I mean, people have been reading the Bible in the power of the Spirit with insight and effect for a very, very long time. And we would be bereft in the church if we didn't listen to them, if we didn't draw them in as conversation partners in our reading of the Bible. There'd be something very thin about our approach to the Bible, if it was just me, Jesus, and the Bible, and there are no other voices out there, right? Tradition can hear the Word of God well, but it can also mishear. In other words, we do believe, and this is part of the doctrine of the church that I think our church affirms pretty wholeheartedly, we believe that the church is transformable, but we also think that the church is deformable. It can, it can get off the tracks. And when it gets off the tracks, when the, tr- when the hearing ear is no longer hearing well, it's the speaking voice of God alone by the power of the Spirit that can get the train back on the tracks. right? And we believe that God does that through His Word, but that's the proper ordering of Word and tradition. That's what sola scriptura is about. The Word of God stands forever, and in it God continues to speak and to make Himself present to us. All right, So that's... Number one, put that somewhere in some crinkle of your brain. If you have questions about that, we'll, we'll come back. Here's number two. Number two, the Bible is a witness to Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't want to embarrass Matt, but our sermon this morning, I think it was such a great example of how the Word of God in a very hard text like Romans, um, has the ability by the power of the Spirit to make Jesus present to us. And I, I, I don't know what your view is of Jesus in our world now, Um, but the Bible, especially the New Testament on these matters, the Bible understands Jesus, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who died and raised again, and is now with the Father, wherever that is, it's not out there, the flip side of our reality, we won't get into that, but wherever he is, um, he makes himself present to us when we worship, I think that's a, a, a life-altering idea to realize Hebrews chapter 10. When we come together and sing, Jesus is with us in the congregation, singing along with us to the Father. I mean, that's, that's a profound view that here we are singing these hymns this morning together, and by the power of the Spirit, Jesus of Nazareth is present with us doing that too, with his brothers and his sisters. It's, it's a profound thought. Um, and we get the sense from the Bible as well that the Bible's role is to make Jesus present to us. And as you might think of the Bible as having a problem, and a lot, Matt mentioned modern Bible scholars today. I mean, these are, you know, they're my buddies. I hang out with these people a lot, right? Um, I was sitting, uh, I won't chase this rabbit too far. I was sitting, um, I, I took a sabbatical three years ago in, in Germany with my family. Um, to study at one of these sort of critical institutions for a while, and and, uh, and was having a Wiener Schnitzel, you know, at the local, you know, pub with this fellow named Jason Radin, lovely guy, Jewish scholar. Um, he was eating Wiener Schnitzel, so you know what? I mean, not we're not not really a practicing Jew, but you know. <laughs> um, so here we were, and, and he told me, he says, you know, Mark, um, here we are, you've got beer in one hand. And, you know, pork and another. And he said, um, I'm convinced that... And we were working on the Minor Prophets. Both of us were. He says, I'm convinced there are people out there in the scholarly realm who think that the Minor Prophets are a unified witness um, because God had something to do with that. You know, and I'm like, uh-oh. And I said, uh, I said, Jason, I've got really bad news for you. I said, I'm one of those guys. And I'll never, I mean, he was incredulous. He said, well, you might be one of those guys then, but you're not a scholar. You can't be a scholar. Oh, he was hot, right? It was fine. Um, but the point is, um, that particular view of the Bible understands the Bible as primarily a document of the ancient past. And it is that. I affirm that. It is. But it's primarily a document that's born out of the, either the ancient Near Eastern world or the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And that's where the Bible has to be left The church universal has confessed that the Bible is an ancient document. It is creaturely. Real humans were involved with all the foibles that come along with being humans. They were involved in that. But at the same time, the Bible is manifestly present to us. If I can quote one Dutch uh, theologian, his name is Herman Bavinck. Bavinck says the Bible is the eternally youthful word of God. It is an ancient document, yes, but it is alive and young and fresh and right in our midst right now because it witnesses to us of Jesus Christ. So the text that I wanted to use to support this is Luke 24. Um, And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to paraphrase it. Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Remember this? I mean, this is the, this is one of those scenes in the Bible where I think we're meant to chuckle a little bit. I thought, I think, we've lost the ability to laugh at the Bible, but we're supposed to laugh here, right? Because here's Jesus after His resurrection, and there are two disciples, Cleopas and someone who's unnamed, and they're walking along the road, and, and uh, they, they look kind of down. And Jesus says, why is everybody looking so glum these days? That's my paraphrase of that. Um, and, and 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 this is the funny part. They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened? I mean, they're talking to Jesus, right? And Jesus says, well, what's happened? And so he plays along with them. And they say, well, they crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And these are some of the saddest words in the Bible. And we thought that he was our Messiah. You know, Messiahs don't hang on crosses. Spartacus does. Slave revolts do. They'll line the whole Apian way in Rome with the slaves of with the bodies of slaves up on crosses. But Messiahs don't do that. And, uh, and he's dead now. And then Jesus rebukes them. And he enters into this interlocution, this dialogue with them. And, uh, and they still don't really recognize him. And so they invite him into the house and he comes in. And they still don't know who he is. And then he begins to teach them. And this is what the Bible says. On the basis of the law and the prophets, he taught them the Bible. And then he took bread and he broke it. Now, in some contexts, I have to be careful how I talk about this. But here, we'll just go full-blown sacramental on this because I think it's the case. When Jesus breaks the bread in Luke 24, that's a Eucharist act. That's a Holy Communion act. With Jesus breaking the bread and teaching the Scriptures... Right, The spoken word of God in the the teaching of the scriptures and the visible word of God and the sacrament. When they come together, there is Holy Spirit combustion at work. Something's happening. And it happens there, right? Jesus breaks the bread and then they recognize him. And boom, he's gone. Well, we have a little gap in the narrative. And then at the end of that same chapter, Jesus shows up again. And he sits with them in the upper room. And what does Jesus do? We're going to get to do this in heaven someday. I cannot wait. But what is Jesus doing? Jesus has a Bible study with them. I mean, here, think about the profundity of this. The author of the Bible is having a Bible study with them, right? And he says, uh, and he explains himself on the basis of the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms, he says there. Again, I'm not going to make an argument for this. I'm just going to assert it. Jesus is in effect saying right there, the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, all of them witness to me. Their existence is because they witness to me. And, if, and what's Luke telling us through Jesus? And if you want to know who I am, if you want to know who I am, then you're going to give yourself to the Scriptures because the Scriptures are the faithful and the true witness to me. Can I give you one more verse with this? The ending of John's Gospel. A lot of debate on this ending. But the ending of John's Gospel says, and Jesus did many other things, so much so that you could just keep riding to the moon and back. He did so much. I always read that verse as a superlative. I always read that as if, boy, John could have just kept on going and going and going. And he could have. But I don't think that's the verse's function. I think its function is a negator. It's a negative statement. Yes, Jesus did do all kinds of other things. And many other things could be written. But do you remember what the next phrase is? But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a claim about the sufficiency of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to witness faithfully to Jesus. Lots of other things could be said, but these are faithful, authoritative, and our word for the day, they're sufficient for you to know who Jesus is, and not just to know Him intellectually, but to know Him in such a way that you can uh, place your faith on Him and your complete trust in who He is and what He's done. So number two, the Scripture is witness to Jesus. Last thing, number three. 2 Timothy 3.16. This this is a this, if, if there are texts that are attached to our understanding of the Bible, this is certainly one of them and very important. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's um, God-breathed. That's the Greek term. We can get geeky for a second. That's the Greek term for spirit, or even Holy Spirit. So the Bible is God-breathed. It's God-spirited. right? And then how does Paul follow that up? And it's profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. What's Paul saying? He's saying the Bible is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and its function is to do everything necessary in the life of faith for instruction and teaching and correction, getting the train of our lives and our churches back on the track. It can do all of that because it's God-breathed. In our tradition, in the sort of broad Protestant and Reformation tradition, the Anglican tradition, there is an emphasis, and it's an important one, on the connection and the link between the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Word and Spirit. God breathed. He gave His Spirit to us, right? To both bring the Bible into being, so that we actually have it, and He also sustains it by the presence and the power and the effect of, of the Holy Spirit. Let me put this in a negative way, right, that might be a little bit provocative, but I think it's true nonetheless. The Bible, right, Old and New Testaments, absent the work of the Holy Spirit are black words on a white page, right? But with the work of the Spirit, which we anticipate and believe will happen again and again and again, right, with the effectual work of the Holy Spirit, these black words on a white page become the very living Word of God to us communicating God's truth, His will, His ways, His salvation, and if I can just use the the right term, the big term, communicating to us His person. We get Him because God is His Word. Right? This is a very Trinitarian claim. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Son of God is is the Word of God. God is His Word. And by the power of the Spirit, by God breathing and sustaining and operating with these words, He continues to give his, to give Himself to us um, every, every time we engage, engage the Scriptures. The Word of God is alive and it's active. When Jim read for us this morning, Jim, you read Romans this morning, right? When Jim read for us Romans this morning, did you notice how we all responded to that? I loved it, and this is a big deal. You can think about this next Sunday. Jim said, this is the word of the Lord. He didn't say this was the word of the Lord. He didn't describe it as something in the past. He used present tense, dynamic verbs to communicate to us that what he just read is the very word of the Lord. That's a promise, and that is the hope when when Jim says a statement like that in our church. That God is at work by His Spirit to make this thing effectual in our lives because He's at work with His Word. All right? So, the three things again, right? Scripture and tradition. They're very important, but they are ordered to one another. Tradition is subservient to Scripture and is shaped by the authority of the Scriptures. Number two, the Scriptures witness to Jesus Christ faithfully. If you want Jesus, you're going to love the Bible. And then number three, um, the scriptures are linked to the operative work of the Holy Spirit. We need the work of the Spirit involved with the scriptures, right? I want to say one final thing, and then we'll open it up. Both Saint Augustine and Karl Barth, two friends of mine, right, for a long time, um, and they're both dead. I tell my students, make dead people your friends, right? Don't 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 trust a living theologian until they're dead, right? But um, uh, so um, the, well, Augustine and Barth are dear friends of mine, uh, and both of them, in their own way, said the following phrase. The Bible has more important things to say than the best of our theological constructions. Okay, one more time. And these, by the way, were the giants right, of our uh, in our stream of great Christian theological thinkers. St. Augustine in the 5th century, Karl Barth in the 20th century, they're, they're luminaries. But both of them said, in effect, the Bible has more important things to say than the best of anything that I've ever written. Right? It's better than Augustine better than Bart God help us it's even better than Calvin and Cranmer, right and it's better than all of them right because the Bible is God's right it's God's and that and God has attached a promise to his word that he will make himself present in our lives um, by attaching ourselves to it and by submitting ourselves in humility to its authoritative voice okay alright that was like putting your mouth to a fire hydrant okay sorry about that what do you want to ask let's, let's, bat, let's bat it around we have time Oh, yeah, look at that. Plenty of time. Right. 1040. Any questions you want to ask? Anyth- anything you're angry about? Could you talk about the inverse of our reality a little bit that you mentioned? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. But um, it's, it's, the, the, We have a physicist here uh, who's retired from UAB. He and I have been kind of an email correspondence a little bit. You know, modern physics has a lot to tell us, I think, about the way in which our world works at its most basic level, and I think we tend to think of heaven in, in spatial terms as something out there. Remember the Russian cosmonaut? Well, I just went out to space, and I didn't see any God out there. We, we tend to think in those terms. I, heaven's not, it's probably the inverse of our reality in some way. So you see these interstellar movies, or, I mean, there, there's something about how physics helps us to understand um, the interrelationship between time and space in ways that can begin to press us a little bit on our simple notions. But I, we don't talk about it. Anything else that you want to... Yes, ma'am. Can you talk about um, maybe the responsibility, or maybe there isn't one, of the clergy uh, to interpret Scripture on our behalf versus us yeah. interpreting... That's a great question. That's a great question because, you know, I think we tend to think of the of clergy, and this is another big matter of, of a, a Reformation principle that emphasizes what Peter calls the priesthood of all believers. Now, I do believe in the ordained teaching office. That's important. I do believe that there are teachers um, and there are people set apart, like Matt, in the life of our church that are given specifically to the teaching and the explaining of the Bible. And we do well to listen to them and to let them use their gifts in the life of the church to help us teach them, to teach that. But there are these groups of Christians in Acts called the Bereans who heard the Apostle Paul, right? They heard the Apostle Paul. And they were praised by Luke, the doctor, because they went away from hearing Paul and they tested everything that he said by the Scriptures. So we, we live, in, I, I guess, in a sense of kind of a tension here because we recognize that there are people vocationally called, and this is, what I, this is how I pay my bills, right? To give themselves to the study of the Bible. We thank God for those people in the life of our church. But we also recognize that God has given to every Christian a responsibility, I think, to give themselves to the Bible. Why? Well, to be taught, yes, but to commune, to be with God, to learn to know who God is and to love him more. Um, That's a call as well. And there's a a discriminating role that I think, um, a discerning role that the body plays so that when they hear Genolet or Pearson or you know, Matt on a Sunday morning preached and they're like, you know what? I've never heard it that way before. I'd like to read the Bible some more to see if what they say is right. That's the kind of instinct that I think, um, at least within our tradition here, we want to affirm that. I mean, we, we let the Bible bring clergy under, under, um, under authority as well. Anything else? Anything from you, Oliver? It's Oliver, right? Yeah. Um, why yeah. didn't the
1: disciples recognize I'm sorry,
0: Oliver. I'm sorry. <laughs> why didn't the disciples recognize Christ? Why didn't the disciples recognize Jesus? Um, I mean, the only answer I really have to that is because he didn't let them. Yeah. And because Luke wanted to make a point about, and, and this is, gets to our lesson today, I do think Luke is making a point here as well through that story, and you don't get to recognize Jesus either unless you go the path that Jesus modeled for you, namely word and sacrament. Do you want to? If you want to recognize the real Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the ascended Lord, your Savior, then you're going to give yourself to the word and to the sacrament. And I think Luke is modeling something for us there, and Jesus is, yeah. Just say theory, yeah, and that says something about the nature of the post-resurrection body. It's something about the nature of Jesus's post-resurrection body being a spiritual body, which, by the way, does not mean non-physical, right? When we when we talk about in heaven us having spiritual bodies, that doesn't mean we're ghosts. Remember the old Far Side cartoon where the two you know ghost figures are sitting on a cloud, and they're like, "Man, if I'd have known heaven's going to be so boring, I should have brought a magazine." Um, I mean, if that's your conception of the afterlife, I mean, God help us, right? It's, it's going to be physical, there's going to be fly fishing in mountains, and it's going to be wonderful, right? I don't know why I brought that up, but it's, it's all going to be there. Um, but it's going to be spiritual, we're going to be marked by the Spirit, and that means there's something that's continuous with our earthly bodies, but also discontinuous, because we're no longer marked, our bodies are no longer marked and marred by sin. And I think Jesus' post-resurrection body is, is demonstrating that there's a continuity here, but there's also a discontinuity in our glorified bodies. Matt? Someone wants to start studying the Bible on their own. Any recommendations? Oh yeah, I was supposed to bring a book. I forgot about that. So you can say a book, okay. but any other recommendations too? Um, you know, and this gets, I think, back to your question. Like, I think, you know, learning the Bible, and if you've never really done it before... It can be really intimidating. I, I, I love the fact that Matt shared that this morning in the sermon. You are like I'm going to read the Bible, and I, I was just impressed you got past Leviticus all the way into Numbers. I mean, that's <laughs> incredible, right? now, I mean, most people get to Leviticus and like forget it. You know, I'm out. Um, th- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Um, you know, there's a great story from this Saint Augustine, who was a brilliant man when he was converted in the early in the late fifth uh, century, early sixth century. Um he's a brilliant man, but he was encouraged to read Isaiah to prepare for his baptism. And he says in his confessions in book nine, and I opened Isaiah and I could not understand the first word. So I put it down until I could learn the Lord's style of language a little bit better. Right? I think Augustine's telling us something here about this. There is a learning process here, Right. Um, and we should have talked about this, and maybe I'll remember this for the next time I do this class. We affirm in this tradition here, the one that that our church is affiliated with, we affirm the clarity of the Bible. Isn't that a crazy thing to say? We believe that the Bible is clear. That's a doctrine that we affirm. But clear for what? Clear enough that the message of salvation, that you know you're a sinner and you need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. You can read the Bible on your own and you can get that. But it doesn't mean that all the Bible is equally clear, right? There's a lot of obscurity and difficulty there, and that's where I think you know we give ourselves to lifelong learning, and this is where I would encourage people to maybe hop in into a Bible study with somebody who has been doing it for a while and learn. I mean, that's a great way to do it. Another thing too is if you do a Google search, it's, it's a, a little bit of a hard read, but you will benefit from it, I believe. Uh, Thomas Cranmer, who we talk about a lot around here. Um, Thomas Cramer wrote five homilies that made their way around the Church of England in the 16th century. One of them is on reading Holy Scripture. It's beautiful because he raises the question Matt just said. Okay, so you're scared to read the Bible. You don't want to get it wrong. So what do you do? I think our answer would be, you know, go to Beast and Divinity School or start, start filling your your head with data. Cramer said, you no, know, the first thing you need to do is to grow in fear And in love and humility, that when you come to read the Bible, you say, I'm going to submit to this and what it says. That's Mark Twain's famous line. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that bother me, right? There's enough, there's a lot that I don't understand either, but there's enough there for us to wrestle with. And Cramer says, and if you want to wrestle with that well, you do so in humility and in submission. Um, So I think, you know, hopping into a Bible study with somebody, learning how to do that. There are some books that are available for this kind of thing as well, um, but not really very many good ones. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, I need to think more about that, actually. Um, but I think being in a live situation where you see people model the study of the Bible for you, that's that's maybe a good place to go. Yes, sir? You know, this reminds me of, of Frank Limehouse's story. You know, in his story, and you know it, but his grandmother, as a young... Person taught him the Bible. Yeah, and then he, then he you know he, he yeah. left. Yeah. But when he came back, it was the foundation, oh, yeah. the, the deep and strong foundation that his grandmother gave him yeah. that yeah. brought him yeah to Christ. That's rich. That's rich. There's a German fellow that teaches um, New Testament now at Southeastern Bible Seminary in in North Carolina. From Germany. He was a businessman, I think, that lived in Munich. Um, I mean, these are these crazy stories you hear about, right? He's on the train on his commute to work, right? And he's a successful businessman in Munich. And f- you remember those little red copies of the Gospel of John that used to float around? I hadn't seen those in a while, but when I was growing up, the red copies of the Gospel of John. Well, there was one on the train in German. He said, I, I just started reading the Gospel of John on the train and was converted, right? I mean, God like blew his life up. Why? Well... God met him, and Jesus met him in the pages of John. And I think these are very powerful stories that witness to the to the to the life-giving character of the Scriptures. There's something profound about the Bible that can sort of get into our souls and and open up holes in our hearts, so that the Holy Spirit will do His work. All right, let me pray, and I'll let us go. What's your book title to recommend to people on further study? Um, I think the book There's a book by Todd Billings called The Word of God for the People of God, and it's in our bookstore. It's not necessarily an easy read, but I think you could benefit from sort of diving into that book a little bit and wrestling with it a bit. Okay. Do you want me to close in prayer? Yeah, Lord, bless our friends here. Now, for those of the, who are new to the faith, for those who have been around a long time, let the hope, Lord, of your promise to be with us, to, that your face will shine on us, um, that you do that through your word. Let, let that seep into our hearts so that we can not only mentally assent to it, Lord, but assent to it in faith and with affection. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.